We always pray for the dog. Um, so I know I've said it before, but as a context for tonight, because we know they just got through the Red Sea, they got through the plagues, we're out in the wilderness and we're seeing these kinds of things. I wanted to come back to that New Testament principle that tells us why we read the Old Testament and why it's a big deal. Um, and one is just in Romans 15, 4, it says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, I think that's King James, aforetime, so, were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. And just this idea that like the reason we go through the Old Testament is because it builds our faith and gives us hope. And we have folks that are looking at, or there's been a discussion around the importance of the word in the church. Over the last couple of weeks, I don't know if you've seen some of the stories, but we've seen some big Christian names walk away from the faith. And, and a lot of it has to do with me, me, me when they do that. I don't know if you've ever kind of read their stuff carefully, but they want, they're, they're going to lead this way and now they're going to lead that way, but they don't really lead anyway, right? They're, they're just going whichever the ways the winds turn them. And the Bible tells us in part, that's because they're not rooted in the scriptures. Um, James 1.23 says, when we look at the word, we see a reflection of ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. And in the, as we've seen these seasons, last week we looked at how they sang after they saw God's work. They were bitter when they got to the pools of Mara and they had to go to drink of living water or have the, the tree make living water for them. And then we saw them come to Elam where they got a season of rest. So they go through these seasons and in some way we should see that as a mirror. We go through seasons in our life too. And when we look at the Old Testament, we look at how they deal with these seasons, we should see when we're in the word we should see a reflection of ourselves and how that works i'm saying all of this because you all know we're going into sin tonight um <laughs> we should see a reflection of ourselves because part of the christian journey is the struggle with sin it's the core battle that we're going to have when we go forward and live our lives so while they're at rest i want to point out they're in elam and that's where chapter 16 is going to happen they're at rest they're in what we I think in our flesh call a good season, like who wants bitter pools? We want this season with palm trees, right? Um, but it's when they are in their season of rest that they start to complain again, right? So everything's good. They got all this stuff happening and then they complain um, and that sort of thing and is, is where that kind of happens. So they're going to journey out from Elam in verse one. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. I wish there was more with the word sin, but it's only in English. In every other language, it just is a word that has that phonetic sound to it. Um, but I like to think maybe that's because the English-speaking wor world needs a more direct connection <laughs> for us to understand it, um, And uh, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So this is exactly like a month just passed, and the Old Testament does that to us all the time, right? between the end of 15 and the beginning of 16 a month has gone by they've hung out by the palm trees they're good to go on that and elam and sinai they're back kind of traveling again and um we know it's a, a month because in exodus 12 18 it says the 15th day is when they they started or left egypt um so the wilderness of sin doesn't have much to do with sin it's just a name that said, this is this is the story we're getting into. They're going to go into sin out in the wilderness. Um, but first they start that sin off. And I think this is a good reflection for us too. Most sin starts with complaining. 
And I remember, I just want to tell about my grandma because I love my grandma and she was dear. And my grandma and grandpa are probably the ones that had the strongest role in bringing me to the faith because I got to see their marriage and I got to see that after 50 years, they still loved each other. And it's amazing to see that. Um, and they even had little arguments, which were kind of cute arguments when you hear old people kind of doing that with each other. But my grandma would like never complain. That was kind of her rule. There is no complaining or arguing. Do everything without complaining. And she would, when you started to complain, grandma would just kind of ignore you. Like she couldn't even hear you because she just didn't want to go there. And the only thing I ever heard my grandmother complain about was my grandfather's preaching. <laughs> so like on the way home on Sunday, she would tell him all the stuff he missed. Um, it was kind of funny. First Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happened to them as examples as they were written for our admonition upon whom's ends of the ages come. That's another one of those New Testament reference saying, these things are these things that happened to the Israelites are things we should be admonishing ourselves with. So God plays this long game and this story that's playing out they don't know it, but they're building the stories that will be the faith base for David, for all the prophets, for um, Moses as he's writing the law. And these events that happen are things that are later on going to be stories for us, even as we're growing up, that our grandparents can tell us and our parents can tell us about. So God's doing this with them. And they're moving from slavery to freedom, which is kind of like our Christian walk. Remember, for slaves, they're used to being slaves. And there's a good side to being a slave in that if you get fed, that food comes from other people, right? So here's where they go with their complaining. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. First in verse two, the whole congregation. Nobody is not complaining. So as a population, they're complaining about stuff. And this happens with the children of Israel. These are people that God has saved. He's redeemed them. He's delivered them. He has saved them. And he has brought them water. And they're all complaining about God. The word complaining is loon in the Hebrew. It's the same word that gets used in Exodus 15:24 when the people murmured against Moses. And it's similar to Exodus 14:12, uh, where they kind of said, oh, I miss all that slavery that we used to have. And now um, God has heard them. God heard them in Exodus 3, 9, 2, the same suffering that they had before he showed up on the scene. So that word loon keeps showing up in this narrative from when they were slaves to now after they're slaves, that murmuring and complaining is what these people do. Which makes you wonder why God saved this particular group of people. He could, there could have been a small tribe of Chinese people that he made into Israel. Could have gone anywhere in the world, but he chose these people, slaves to the Egyptians, and he's working with these people. And I think in part, it's because they have nothing to brag about themselves. They're slaves and whatnot, and in the same way, we don't either. And... Um, this morning at church, we were talking about the use of gifts in the church. Like, whatever skills you have, put them to use and let people help and, and add to your fellowship with those gifts. Um, and one of the things that I think that is a danger is you use those gifts and people say, oh, you're so good at cooking or you're so good at teaching or you're so good at this. And people will get really excited when you first bring those gifts to the church. You're really good at music. Thanks for all that. And the temptation is to say, why, thank you. I am really good at those things. I worked very hard to make all those things happen. 
And that's such a danger because before we were saved, we weren't in the church. So even the fact that we're there is something because God redeemed us and put us there. These Israelites, this complaining they do, they have nothing to brag about. It's complete disconsent and selfishness. And they're recreating history. And you, I hope you caught that, right? We sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full. No, they didn't. They were out making bricks, remember? Miserably making bricks, and the Egyptians took away their straw, so they had to work extra long days, extra long time, and they were crying out to the Lord saying, please get me out of here. And then they turn and they look back. So they're recreating all these wonders of Egypt, and they're lying to themselves about how great it was. And they forgot that their babies were being killed. Notice they don't mention that part, right? Just skipped right over that. So let's look carefully at what complaining is, um, in, in part because this is a mirror for us. One, oh, that we is the beginning of it. Uh, oh, that we had died. So, oh, that we, notice that complaining starts with a focus on yourself. And when people complain, they're almost always focused on themselves. There's something they deserve that they think they should have that they're telling other people they should have. Sometimes that means they should have it over other people. Sometimes it means they should have it despite the fact that God hasn't given it. But essentially, complaining always starts with a focus on ourselves. Number two, when we sat by the pots of meat, Complaining often has selective memories. We often, as humans, twist reality to favor our own narrative about it, right? So this twisting of the past is super common with complainers, right? So you're driving home from church and you didn't like the worship that day and you turn to your wife and say, what'd you think of worship? And she said, ah, it wasn't that good. And you're like, I know, it was horrible. You couldn't hear anything. And you exaggerate how bad it really was. And we do that in our brains really quick because when we complain, we want to make the biggest complaint possible so we can attract the most reward possible. But the lie is there's no reward in complaining. It never does any good. My grandma was right, right? All you're doing is, is recreating that history. For you have brought to kill. See that in verse 3 too? You have brought us to kill. You brought us out of the into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly. Is Moses trying to kill them? Really? So, number three, complainers, number one, focus on themselves. Number two, they change their memories. Number three, they tend to imagine evil intention from the leaders of their organization or their congregation. Our pastor just doesn't care. He's too lazy. He's trying to just get things for himself. Who's taking care of the finances in this church? What's going on here? The only person, the only reason that person's on the worship team is because they're so-and-so's kid, Right? You tend to imagine these horrible things happening from your leaders, and their leaders are generally not that ill-intented, right? Generally, leaders are doing the best they can to make the best experience possible for as many people as possible. So that's the truth of it. Number four, the whole assembly with hunger. So Moses isn't just trying to kill one or two people. He's trying to kill all of them. Mass murder, which is what Pharaoh was actually trying to do and they're blaming Moses of the same sin. So number four, complainers tend to exaggerate. They focus on themselves, they have selective memories, they think evil intentions of others, and they exaggerate. So the me becomes the we very quickly. 
we have a problem with so-and-so. We have an issue. And by the time people bring their complaints to other people, they tend to say we over me. It's not that I have an issue, it's we have an issue. So complainers tend to run around to try to find other people to complain with them. This is very close cousin to complaining's friend gossip. Because in order to win people to the we, you have to get other people on board with what you're saying, right? Notice that these things, notice that when things go well, they're singing songs to God. When things are tough, they blame Moses and Aaron, right? So God gets the glory when it goes well. Moses and Aaron get the shaft when it doesn't. <laughs> this means, this is a lesson or a mirror of Christian leadership. Christian leadership sucks. Because anytime things go well, praise be to God. Anytime things go ba bad, it's Jackson's fault, right? And that's Christian leadership. Welcome to the faith. So Moses doesn't get any credit for the victories, even though God lets him, you know, use his little rod of power. And God's trying to show Moses is in the middle of this. And Moses is doing my work for me. So when we suffer... We tend to blame instead of think, maybe God wants us to have a dry period in our life. Maybe he wants us to stress out. So godly leaders, take the blame. That's what we do. We don't argue back. We don't say things. We just take the blame. And we, okay, if you need to put that on me, I'm here and I'm here to do it because I'm already dead. I already died to myself a long time ago. I'm not here to advocate for myself. Nate, I thought I told you to hold my calls. <laughs> no silence. <laughs> so very quick shifts. Here's the other thing that with this particular verse, hunger is real. Like what they're complaining about is actually an authentic and real thing to kind of, you know, hey, where's the food going to come from out here? We're looking around and we don't see a lot of food and what's going to happen. So the complaining doesn't feed them, but it is identifying a real human solution. So there has to be some kind of middle ground or an appropriate way to deal with real concerns versus just assuming that Moses is trying to kill them, right? Having someone go to Moses and just say, hey, Moses, I'm just curious. Do we got a plan for food here or are we just trust in the Lord? You move the Red Sea, food's not an issue for God. Like to see his next miracle. So should we stop and pray and wait and stand still? Remember all that from a couple chapters ago? Should we do all that stuff now? Because we're getting really hungry. And that would probably be the better way to do it. But that's not the congregation. The congregation is, let's complain. So they're moving from political slavery, and now they're moving into this kind of wilderness where they're sinning. And they're just kind of living in that sin, which is to complain. I think the American church is caught in this right now. We go to church looking for what we can find. It's about me. When it's not there... We think that church has issues and problems and we go look at the next church and we blame the leadership for doing it wrong, right? And in the end, we have a whole Christian community in America popping from church to church to church to church trying to find the, what they want in a church. And that's just a weird spot. And I'm talking to a room full of people that aren't, I don't think I'm talking to the, the you know, that group of people right now because a lot of people in this room serve in their churches and they're active in their churches. But, so you're more in that category where sometimes you know what it feels like to be Moses, where you're doing everything you can do and people still find ways to complain. And the correct response is to not say, well, why don't you do it? That's, no. <laughs> um, maybe it's just better to fit in with the world again. If this is the struggle, if this is the sin of the church, that wandering in the wilderness thing, why not just go back to Egypt? 
and they're turning back. Remember in Genesis, Lot's family turned back? They missed things about the city. Oh, Broadway. I wish I could just go back to Broadway. And I wish I could go back to that city where everything was fun. In Sodom, they had great movie houses. They had great sports teams. And we're just walking away from there. And they didn't have, I mean, they're looking back. And this is one of the problems of sin, is you start looking back into that old life and constantly looking at the world thinking, I wish I could just see the world simply again. I had the blue pill and I shouldn't have. Is that the right one or is it the red one? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Um, And that's part of the sin here too, is they're looking back at Egypt like it was something that was good for them. And they're forgetting that what's good for them is this wilderness and that's what's there. So they have to start sustaining themselves from God's provision. And I love this next part. It's really cool. Then the Lord said to Moses, listen to how the Lord is so graceful. He doesn't go after the Israelites. He knows they're human. What he does is he says, behold, which we know means to look or to see something. I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I might test them whether they walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. The word then at the beginning of, of, of four is we've seen a lot of an exodus. Um, I'm sorry, we haven't seen a lot of thens in exodus. We usually see so. So this happened. So is not the case here. What we so is a causal thing. This happened, so this happened then is incidental or chronological. They complained, then the Lord did this. But the Lord didn't do it because they complained. Does that make sense? I know the huge difference between then and so. But it's. I think it's important to know the nature of God. He doesn't do it because they complained. He does it after they complain. Um, so just a precursor. God's therefore not appeasing people. He's doing what he probably planned to do for them prior to their test. He just wanted to wait to see how long they could go before they complained, right? And I think that's what my grandma was doing. Like, she lived through the Great Depression. They made rabbit stew and squirrel meat, and they did all that in my grandma's. Like, this is North Dakota Great Depression, right? They wanted to see how long they could go without saying a word of complaint. We'll take what God gives us. We'll take our daily bread. We'll be happy with what we get and to see how long we can go. And I think sometimes the Lord does that with us. He pushes us as far as he can, then he gives us our daily bread, and then he, we go for another round of testing. And in each round, we get stronger and stronger and stronger. I will br- rain bread from heaven for you. Moses is just going to accept this, of course. I think that's kind of funny. Moses accepted the burning bush. He accepted the plagues. And now he's just accepting, okay, bread from heaven. I gotcha. And there's no argument. There's no... With a lot of our biblical heroes, we see them really question, like, how's that going to work? Uh, but not Moses. He's like, okay, I've seen you do stuff before. So this is outside of the laws of nature. It's a creative way that God's done it. I think we get to see God's creativity because he's just going to rain bread from heaven. That's a creative solution. And it reminds me of the book, The Spaghetti with a Chance of Meatballs. <laughs> right? Anyways, um, God acts differently all the time. And in this case, he's going to act differently again. So um, Moses' response is, okay, I gotcha, let's do this. Um, Dave Gusick points out on this P-51 
piece here, and it's important to see the phrase here. In verse 4, it says bread from heaven. Whenever God is talking about it, he calls it bread from heaven. Whenever the people or Moses talk about it, you're going to notice they call it manna. But God doesn't call it manna, and we'll get into that in a second. So in Exodus 16.31, we're going to kind of see that, that shift there too. Um, it gets called bread from heaven throughout the Bible when we're hearing from God's perspective. Nehemiah 9.15, Psalm 78.24, Psalm 105.40, or sometimes in Psalm 78.25, it's called angel's food. Food we can eat from heaven, right? So this idea that it comes from, from heaven. So I thought back to Sunday school, and I don't think I've ever heard my Sunday school teacher call it angel's food. Though angel's food cake is one of my favorites with strawberries. <laughs> and I don't think in, in Sunday school I ever heard it called bread from heaven. I always heard it referred to as manna. But that's the earthly term for it. It's not the heavenly term for it. So gather a quota. I like that God still expects work. I'm not just going to give you free food. You have to go out and gather it. So they had to kind of like scrape it off the grass and whatnot. So I like that this, when we see the law in Leviticus 19.10, they have a gleaning program. That's their welfare program in Israel, is you glean. So if you don't have enough income to make your own food, the farmers are supposed to not like clean comb their crops. They're supposed to just leave some stuff. The stuff that wasn't quite ripe, they just leave it. They don't go back and harvest a second time that made it so that people that were poor could go out in the fields and gather their own food. And it was their welfare program. If you want to eat, you need to go do some work for your food. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every single grape in your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. In both places, the idea is don't hoard things for yourself. And manna is going to teach them that lesson over the next 40 years. Take what you need and be content with what you have. So don't gather more than you need to. Take what you need. And I think this is a good principle for work. When we go out and we do work, we take what we need to pay off our student loans, and we don't sit and try to hoard more money than that. So when we've got what we need to survive, find other ways to spend your money. And I know I'm talking to just recently graduated people, so it's not like many of you have to struggle with hoarding yet. <laughs> um, but it's in our nature. When we hoard things, we feel like we win. I think of Jackson when he won the last pot of poker last week and he just <laughs> hoarded it all in and you just have that feeling of I win and it's such a nice feeling but it's also an evil feeling complaining is evil hoarding your stuff is evil and these things are there not Jackson I it's just a game I get that but in real life we do that too and we try to hoard things but when we hoard things we're also making it so other people can't have what they need verse 6 then Aaron, Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. I like how they give the glory to God. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints which you made against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us but against the Lord so Moses kind of repeats himself between verses 6 and 7 and verses 8 you see that kind of says the same thing two times so complaints against the Lord are in both Moses is in response to complaining he's truthfully redirecting their complaints you're complaining against me that I'm trying to kill you but you're really complaining against God because it's what he's provided 
So that's a different kind of place, right? So good leadership redirects the complaints. You know who you're complaining against? You're complaining against God. Now, real complainers don't accept that answer, right? Because you're like, who do you think you are? You think you're God? I'm complaining against you. No, I'm giving you everything God's given me. So if God hasn't given me enough to satisfy you, you're complaining against God because I'm not holding back, right? And it's that truthful redirecting. The Lord has brought you out. Moses reminds them that they're not Egyptians anymore. You chose this path. You could have not done the lamb over your doorpost. You could have lost your firstborn son. You could have stayed in Egypt, but you chose to come out. He hears your complaints. He repeats it in verse 7 and 8. And he could respond with discipline, but God doesn't respond with discipline. He responds with giving us exactly what we need when we need it. Verse 9. Then Moses spoke to Aaron. Hey, bro. Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of Israel, congregation of the children of Israel. That's a long title, but they're using it repeatedly now. Congregation of the children of Israel. That they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We've seen this before. He was in the cloud when they were traveling. Remember the Egyptians saw a cloud and they saw a fire. He was before them when they had to move out of Egypt. We saw the same, the, the Shekinah glory when he was in the bush and he appeared as fire there. So there's this fire cloud kind of thing that keeps popping up. Abraham saw a fire cloud go between the covenant sacrifices. So God doesn't pull them out of the wilderness. He provides them for them in it. So he doesn't say, I hear your complaints. I'm going to get you out of this situation. He actually hears their complaints and gives them what they need in this situation. Okay. And I thought that was an, a good distinction. Um, it's hard to think why these people don't have faith. And if this is supposed to be a mirror, I keep thinking if I were these people, I don't know that I would be this dumb, right? Or this dull. You'd think I would get it. But it's, I want to remind us, it said the whole congregation. We would have been complaining too. And we would have been in this situation too. It says, you shall know, which tells us the purpose here is still to get to know God. Life is a giant probationary period to get to know your God. That's it. So, and, and, and it's, he's not quite done with these people. He's done with Egypt. He's dealt with them. He's finished with them. We don't hear anything more about that side of the narrative. But with his people, he's still introducing himself. The whole purpose of this is so that you get to know me. What I want you to get to know me is that I provide your daily bread. That's me that does that. So in verse four, it says that I might test them. Same idea. God's trying to build this habit of trust, right? If you want to walk in my law or not, so you can know that I'm the Lord your God. It's the same thing today. Do we resist God's law or do we try to walk in it? And that's two different paths to lead in life. There's a super simplicity to this, right? All we have to do is worry about today. That's all God asks us to do. So it's not where God tells us to worry. It's a test to do that. Worry is a unique human trait. So there's complaining, right? There's exaggerating and doing that. But there's also this thing called worry, which is to worry about where things are coming from and what's going to happen next. 
In the same way that singing was a uniquely human trait, worry is also a uniquely human trait. This week with Shadow, we tried experiments. We tried to get Shadow to worry, and he just doesn't. He gets anxious when we leave. In the moment, he'll get upset, but we just can't get him to think about tomorrow at all. And most animals don't. It's uniquely human. It's part of our flesh nature is that we try to plan. And when we try to plan, that means other people need to align with our plan, which means we try to force other people to do what we want them to do, which means we're in this kind of cycle of sin, right? This is the wilderness. So if we can sing to the Lord, can we also give the Lord our worry? Can we depend on the Lord and can we trust the Lord in that super simple way of getting our daily bread from God? Um, So that you shall know is an interesting phrase in that passage too. So that means the miracles didn't help them get to know God. Does that follow me on that? This thing that's not so amazing, that's going to happen on a daily basis, getting your daily bread from God, that's what helps us get to know God. It's not the miraculous. When we got saved, that's miraculous. That's taking salvation and changing a human heart in a 180 direction. That's a miracle. But how quickly do Christians forget that? And we got to go on a 40, 50, 60 year journey after we get saved. Um, And the miracles don't bake in. The miracle of salvation isn't what sustains us, but the daily bread does. Living and following and complying with God's law, that is what gives us that faith. So this is where their certainty is going to come from. You want to take down the walls of Jericho? You got to be certain that God is with you when you march around Jericho and bang on your drums and sing your songs got to be unshakable, right? So if you want to fight those battles, let's start a 40-year journey of just getting your daily bread from God. This is what my grandma understood. And they sang an old hymn that said, daily walk with thee. And I don't know the tune exactly. Do you know which one I'm talking about? They would sing these hymns that talked about just this simple, basic faith where every day we wake up and we walk with God and we get our daily bread from God. A little devotional called My Daily Bread. This is where we get that kind of idea. So we start with this amazing, miraculous deliverance where we're like, God is real and amazing. We start on this mountaintop and then we come to learn to enjoy that it's not the mountaintop experience that makes the Christian walk so exciting. It's that every single day we get exactly what we need and we just get fed. Or we come to church on Sunday or you come to Bible study on Sunday night. It's exactly what you needed to get through that week. And when you do that consistently for 10, 15, 20 years, you look back on your life and instead of seeing Egypt, you see God's hand. And then you stop looking back at Egypt and you start looking forward to what God's going to do next. I'm going to read a big section here. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground, or hoarfrost, which I think is a great word if you're in the King James. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person. That's an omer with me. One omer for each person, according to the number of people, persons, let each man take for those who are in his tent. So gather enough for whoever's in your household. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. No, Israel children, 
gather what you need, not more, not less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, but he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered according to each one's need. Oh, no, this isn't that part where they do that. So they gather as much as they can, and they happen to come up with just the right amount, right? The quails came up. True story, the quails come through this part of the world every year. And here's what happens with the quails. They're flying from Africa up through to the Middle East, and they have to cross the Red Sea, which is a pretty long journey. So by the time they get done with the Red Sea, they land on the shore, and then they pass out. <laughs> so entire flocks of quails travel to this part of the world, and then when they get to the shore, they're so exhausted, they can't even move. They just kind of look up at you and fall over. So it's actually quite a sight to see. It still happens today. The miracle here isn't the fact that there were quails all over in their camp. The miracles that it happened exactly now and the timing of it is that pretty amazing. But we see this happens all the time. So that quail migration happens to happen that very day. Quail are delicious. Back in Egypt, they're a delicacy. They still are. Quail eggs are a delicacy too. Uh, so perhaps um, this is the most exciting way God could have met their need because it's probably one of the foods some of them pine for is nice barbecue quail, right? So they get their quail, a full dose of it. This is high protein. It's good for you. Um, it's not good for the birds, um, <laughs> but they're exhausted and they are not hard to catch. All they have to do is go grab them, crack their necks and have some quail for dinner. Small round substance. This is a, the Hebrew for it means something like flake-like or a peeling. Like if you shave an orange peel, there would have been these little peelings. And I'm thinking snow, but then it says the dew on the ground. And when the dew cleared, there was this small round flake substance on the ground. So it's clearly not snow or frost because the dew, the sun takes that away. And what's left over is this stuff. So they got to go around and get these little pea-sized chunks of whatever. Um, and this is the only place we see this in the Bible, this, this idea of a small round substance. The frost on the ground is Hebrew for kapor. It means a covering or a hoarfrost. And of course, when the children of Israel say, what is this? That's what manna means. Literally, the translation for what is this is manna. I just thought that was funny. So when they talk about manna bread, they're talking about like, what the heck bread? What is this stuff? And even today, we're like, we still don't understand. Like, what was this? And what did it look like? Well, it was angel food, right? And it was this kind of thing. But literally, whenever you see the word manna, it means what? With like question mark, exclamation point, question mark. What? So it's what bread? Um, what's the purpose of it? Deuteronomy 8.3 tells us what the purpose of this bread was. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed you with what bread or manna, which thou didn't know, neither did your fathers know it, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord doth man live. That's in Deuteronomy. Do you remember where else we heard that? Jesus says that. So Jesus uses Deuteronomy and picks it up. Thanks, Zach. Um, before I get to the Jesus thing, though, because we'll jump to Jesus, in Psalm 78, 25, where they call it uh, angel's food, uh, I just like the idea of what Tolkien did with lambas bread, right? There's this food that the elves made that fills you, and it's exactly what you need. 
and it became a core story element because the enemy Gollum throws it away and tosses away this daily bread to get through this wilderness journey that you have to get through. The metaphor is really wonderful, and Tolkien picked up on that by knowing that this was angels' food, right, that they had. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's tempted, just like the children of Israel, right, out in the wilderness, starving and hungry. Instead of complaining, Satan tempts him and says, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered, Jesus answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're supposed to just get our daily bread in the word of God. And when we don't do that, we're not rooted in the faith. Our faith is weak. We get taken to the left and to the right, and the wind blows us in all directions. So how do we resist temptation? We start asking for what bread? Like, Lord, show me what I need each day. If Jesus failed in this test, he's no more than human. He's like the whole congregation. He's like everybody else. If Satan can get him to do that, then he's not God anymore because he's eating himself. Because Jesus calls himself the bread that we need, right? So if it comes from Jesus, Jesus can't ask for it and need it. So that human side, God side, depending on how your theology plays out on that, this is a key moment, and it's a key teaching by Jesus. So John 6, verse 26 through 33, I'm going to read you a little larger section. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, John 6, 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves that were filled. It's not the miracle that gives us what we need. And Jesus is saying that again too, right? You you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It's more impressive for us to, it is more impressive than seeing a miracle for us to be filled every day and have peace in our heart. That's a miracle. We are striving beings. And as humans, we're constantly this empty hole we got to fill. Money might fill it. Power might fill it, romance might fill it, but we're always striving for something in our lives. Single people are striving to be married. Married people are striving to be more successfully married, right? There's always a striving going on. We always need more money. We always want more control. And it keeps going. Verse 27, Jesus says, Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you every day. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to them, What do we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then? He just got done saying, It's not the signs that matter. What sign will you perform then that we might see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives you life to the world. Then they said to them, Lord, give us this bread always. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what Jesus taught them to pray every single day. So this is like a 
like you're reading through this chapter and you're like, yeah, they got bread from heaven. That's great. But when you stop and think of it and look at the mirror, it's like, no, this is a core biblical truth. Our goal should be daily fulfillment in God's word, daily connection with Jesus Christ, daily prayers, even on the days where we don't feel like anybody's there to listen to us. But each day, just bringing what we need to the Lord and watching the Lord fill those needs. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. Watch what I do to where you get to the end of the day and you're not overwhelmed anymore. Verse 19, back in Exodus. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it. Grant just starts laughing. This is the story of Israel. They don't listen and they keep messing up just like me. So thank you that I have this mirror to look at where God's graceful with humans. Notwithstanding, verse 20, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was very angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So it's not just a couple of people. Notice carefully the word there says, they did not heed. Again, we're talking about the whole congregation. Like they're bad at listening and God has to train them in. Um, So they're not understanding what obedience looks like or doing what God tells us to do. Christians are like this too. We're told to be in the word every day. We're not. Most semesters at Bethel, I would ask the students, like how many of you were in the word this morning? Some of you have been in my class. You remember this moment. They all look back at me very guilty like, like I haven't been. And then throughout the semester, I can watch these students that they have stress, they have anxiety, they're always overwhelmed, they never keep it together. And it's like, have you made time sacred for God every day? It's the only way to do it. And anything else you do on your own strength, you're going to get overwhelmed. And college is very good at overwhelming people. So is the workplace when your boss wants more and more and more and you don't really have the skill set to give them what they want or you don't care enough about the job to give them what they want, right? It's just not that important to you. Either way, there's no short-circuiting this process of being in the Word, being with Jesus, being in prayer, at least getting together with other believers every week where you can just be together and hang out together and have waffles together. That's super important in our walk. And it's not a miracle. It's not the signs that give us our faith. It's a daily walk with him that gives us our faith, where you're rooted. And you have courage because you know you got your family on Sundays. So when you run into things during the week, you're like, I don't care what you think of me. I got my family, right? And my family means more to me than what other people think of me, especially people in the world. Moving from slavery to freedom includes a stage where we deal with our complaining and we deal with our sin. We have to wrestle with it. We're all fallen, we're imperfect, but that's not an excuse for sin. It's a reason to do battle with it. We're imperfect, we have a war to fight in our own members, and Paul talks about that a lot. I'll follow God, but I want to hold on to that one last thing. I want to hold on to my complaints. No, let them go. You have to get rid of them. I'm going to secretly take a little more than I need to each day. Maybe there's a sin in spending all day in Bible study when we should be out loving people. So it could be taking too little, too more, too more, too many more, too less. This summer, I've been totally guilty that. I'll be like, no, honey, I don't want to talk right now. I'm in the word. But that's not an excuse to take care of your responsibilities and go out and do your things for the day, right? And we can do that. Verse 22, and so, we're back to so now, and so it was on the sixth day, that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. 
And then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. Woo, we get to the concept of Sabbath. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourself all that remains to be kept till morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded. Now they're learning to obey. And it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there'll be none. So we have a core principle for the people of God. Work your tail off for six days in a row, and on day seven, take a break. Verse 27, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather. Again, they just keep doing this. Some of these people, instead of resting, you'd think from a slave population, the proclamation that you don't work seven days a week, you get one day for the Lord, you'd think they would celebrate and sing songs like they did a chapter ago. But no, now it happened that some of the people were not at all of them anymore. Did you see that? It's not the whole congregation or they, it's some of them. So the Lord is training this nation. Some of them went out on the seventh day to gather, but they didn't find any. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So the Lord's upset with Moses. Again, Christian leadership is not all that we initially think it should be. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Stay at home with your family. Hang out with your congregation and chill, right? That's the command. Obey God and I'll give you everything you need, okay? There has to be a two-way street. We get everything from God and all he's asking out of our life is to make some things sacred. Some of the people were getting better Uh, Moses is angry, but now the Lord is upset with Moses. Um, And he helps Moses see that this is something that he needs to, as a leader of the people, Moses should be out kind of enforcing this. He should be encouraging people to do it. The first month I was at Bethel, I was serving as a department chair, and I was sitting in church, and not one, not two, but three different faculty were texting me on a Sunday morning about work. So I come back to them on Monday, and I kind of, sit down in their office. Hey, do you got a second? I just want to let you know, we're getting to know each other, but if you're texting me on a Sunday morning, you are not impressing me. You're just showing me you have no balance in your life. Go be with your family. Stop working on on my behalf on a Sunday. And I don't think some of them liked me for that reason, (laughs) but keep it sacred. Like this is the one thing God asks of us Initially, we don't have a book of laws. Leviticus doesn't exist yet. All they have is this thing like, I'm going to give you everything. Take a day and stay home with your family. But what's the one thing Satan goes after? What's the one thing? Let's not even involve Satan. Let's own this one. What's the one thing we abandon? Sacred Sundays, right? That also gets abused, again, too much, too little. Like either side is a sin. It also gets abused by the Pharisees. Remember, that's one of the things the Pharisees start holding over the children of Israel. And they use Sabbath like a law, like a hammer, right? And they start making like sub-rabbinical laws, hundreds of little laws. You can't spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit, there were people that would spit and like move their toes and accidentally drop a seed in order to plant a few more crops on a Sunday. And that image to me is so impressive of who I am too. It's a mirror. 
I want to just check one more email on a Sunday. I want to just get ahead before I go to bed. I want to do that one little thing. And suddenly I'm putting myself in this prison and the Pharisees were basically going around and outlawing these things. And that's not what Sabbath was meant to be. Sabbath, according to Jesus, was that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're not supposed to service. So my new business partner calls me up yesterday and he says, we got a Muslim family. The only time we can get into their house is on a Sunday. Hate to ask this of you, but can you go down and take a look at their house? And it's like, yeah, I can go down and take care of it, right? But I'm not doing it in the morning when I go to church. And you know I got Bible study at night, so I got, I'm going to do it in between. But I'm not going to be dominated by Sabbath like I have a new master. That's not the point of Sabbath. That's one extreme. But I'm also going to do everything I can do to keep it sacred. That's the other extreme, right? I'm going to do that. See, in verse 29, it says, See, for the Lord has given you Sabbath, is ra'ah, which means to perceive something or to learn something. It's not to see it with your eyes, it's to see it with your heart and your mind, right? So when the Lord said, or in verse 29, when it says, Lord says to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you Sabbath. Learn something here. Everything you think you're doing in those six days a week, the seventh isn't going to help you, right? It's not going to do it. And everything in this world will try to get in the way of your Sundays, or your Sabbath. We have people that do Saturday Sabbaths too, right? The Jewish people. But everything else is going to try to take that. The world's going to try to get at it. Your own concerns are going to get at it. Your worry will get at it. Your complaining will get at it. Um, but the goal here is to keep my commandments and my laws. And the only ones we have yet are the Noahic commandments. Don't kill people. And collect your food. Work hard and rest on the seventh day. This is a really simple list of commandments so far, but it's a test. God wants it as a test, right? Moving from slavery to freedom includes this stage of complaining and sin, and the solution to complaining and sin is take your daily bread, keep your Sabbath holy. And it becomes one of the Ten Commandments too. Become a Jesus freak, and your sin freak starts to give way but it won't give way because of the miraculous moments in your life. It'll give way because of your faithful commitment to the word every single day and keeping those Sabbaths holy. The sixth day, it's really amazing what's going to happen here. The Sabbath takes a super special place for God. It's one of the first things he teaches his people. And it seems so ordinary. There's nothing fancy about Sundays. We eat some waffles. We study his word. There's nothing fancy about it. But how quickly do humans want to turn it into a giant celebration? How long did it take for the first cathedral to get built? Where it just became this monolith of human achievement in the face of God. And we go that way. We make Sundays more religious than they should be. We make Sundays less religious than they should be. But it's just the ordinary commitment to be with a small group of people, a family, a congregation, stay in your homes Verse 29, let every person, every man remain in his place. Don't go out of this place on the seventh day. Don't do that. So much less, it hit me, this is so much less of a requirement than any other other world religions out there. Look at any other world religion and the requirements on the followers are huge. Go to Mecca once in your life, that's an expensive trip to get to Mecca, right? To meditate until yourself goes away? How do you do that? That's huge. That's massive. And every other religion has these giant things that you're supposed to do. But in this 
children of Israel kind of thing. Just faithfully walk with God. Get your daily bread. That's it. Enjoy what God gives you instead of giving something to God because what you have to give to God isn't that impressive. They work on the sixth day. I don't know if you picked that up. Sixth day, they go out and do the same amount of work, but they get double the food. I've seen this happen a ton. Alyssa, you even mentioned this a while ago, that you have tons of work to do and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to keep up. I got 18 credits, right? How are you going to do that? Here's how you do it. Keep Saturday holy or keep Sabbath holy. And suddenly you just get the time to do everything and it all works. And God actually honors that miracle. Um, A similar kind of thing that God does in our life is with our finances. He says, if you honor him here, then he'll honor that it'll all work out and you'll have what you need for your daily bread. That is not prosperity gospel. That's daily bread gospel, right? You don't get filthy rich by tithing to the church. That's a huge lie. But you do get your daily bread and you are able to eat and you get what you need. So pray for the help to do it. I think this is one of those things. At some point, you're going to realize you can't stay in the daily bread and you can't keep the Sabbath holy by yourself. You need spiritual intervention to do it. Lord, help me to not worry on Sundays. Help me to just be free from the slavery of this world on Sundays. Help me to just relax and do it. And God will honor that prayer because you're doing what he asked you to do. God might ask for more from us, but he doesn't. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. God could ask for a lot. He only asks for one day a week. That's a simple request, given that he should own our whole life, right? Okay. <laughs> All right, I will get into it. This is convicting. For, you can see this is a big deal for me. I've struggled with this my whole life. And what's amazing is if you give more than one day a week to the church or to God's work and service, most people on this earth will think you're a nut. But let's put the nutty Christian thing over here for just a second. We'll just put that on the shelf. What if you give six nights a week to watching television and entertaining yourself? Is that crazy? No, this world's perfectly okay with watching TV six nights a week. What if for six nights a week... You hung out with your friends and just had fun. You went out to the bars every night for six nights a week. Nobody would think that was crazy. But when you go to the church and do that sort of thing, people think you're nuts. They think you're in a cult, right? Mm -hmm. Something's wrong with you. And it's like, nothing's wrong with me. I just want to maybe give the Lord more than one day a week because I like it, right? Um, One day a week will prep you for any kind of battle this this life's come. Most people want more, especially new Christians that are in training, will want to come to Bible study every night of the week, right? But one day a week is pretty much what you need to do Christian combat and to live out a Christian and godly lifestyle. I think God knew exactly what we needed psychologically, so he made seven-day weeks. He could have made 10-day weeks. We could have had 20-day weeks, right? He could have set up the universe and solar system however he wanted to, but we have seven-day weeks, and it tends to be what we kind of how we rotate. I think because it's such an easy thing to do, it's why it's the first thing we reject and fall away from as a church. It's so easy. Who cares? It's not a big deal. You're right. It's not a big deal. So give it to God. And it's the same not a big deal that makes it so easy for us and low demanding. It's that not a big deal that makes it so easy to abandon and give up and quit doing. Skip one day of Bible study in the morning and now you're skipping two days. Next thing you know, you're skipping a week and then you're skipping a month. Don't do it. Give five, ten minutes in the morning to read in the Word every day and say in a word of prayer. It can be quick and fast. You can do it while you're eating your breakfast cereal. 
But that daily bread, go out and gather your manna every day, get what you need. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. They're learning to obey. Now that they're resting, the journey can continue. So they've escaped Egypt. They've followed the Shekinah glory of the cloud. They've drank the living water in in the middle of bitterness. Now they're eating their daily bread from heaven. And number five, they can rest on the seventh day. Isn't that a cool walk? That's the journey, right? So we get wisdom when we depend on God. You can order your life. Remember Genesis 1.1, God in the beginning was God and he saw darkness and void and chaos. And he brought order to the chaos. Remember that from Genesis 1? This is what he's doing with the Israelites in their life. Instead of chaos, he's bringing order and structure to their life. Super godly. And it's super hard for some of us that are a little more random creative, right? But to bring order and structure to your life is part of how God can operate and work in your life. And the house of Israel, verse 31, called its name, what bread? Manna. What? And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Here's the cool thing. You would think oatmeal every day would get bad. It doesn't. This little manna stuff tastes like wafers made with honey. I think that's like oatmeal. But note that verse 31 comes after verse 30. First they obeyed, and then suddenly they realized it's kind of sweet. Like, this is really cool, and this is what veteran Christians can tell newbie Christians like me, right? What seems so hard to do is actually not that bad. Once you get into the rhythm and habit of daily Bible study, it's like you can't go without it, right? We had Martin Luther used to say, well, how come you spend two hours a day in Bible study? It's like, because I can't afford not to. Like, I'm too busy to not spend that much time in the Word. He gets exactly what he needs before he goes on with the work of his day. So they get quail for dinner and, you know, as close as we can tell, like honeycombs for breakfast, right? The breakfast of champions. It's not that bad. So the Lord provides everything you need, and it's not horrible, it's not mundane, it's actually pretty sweet. And it becomes this sweet daily walk with you. And that's what the Lord calls us to do. It's what our forefathers celebrated, was that holy daily walk. And it's going to last for 40 years before the children of Israel will do war and do what they're called to do to claim that holy land. Verse 32, then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out into the land of Egypt. So Moses, I want you to gather a little jar of the manna and we're just going to keep it for the museum, right? And their museum is called the Ark of the Covenant, but they haven't built that yet. So just hold on. I just want you to keep one jar of it. And Moses said to Aaron, I like how he hands it off. Hey, Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Again, God's bringing order to the nation. Do you see that? He talks to Moses. Moses talks to Aaron. Aaron takes care of the work and he's building order and and, uh chain of command into the kingdom. And the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to the inhabited land. And they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And now an omer is one-tenth of an ephath. I think verse 36 is charming because Moses is adding like a little commentary at the end of his thing just to let you know how much an omer is. It's one-tenth of an ephath. 
which means nothing to us today. Um, but it's an authenticity thing, right? He's he's of all the things he's got to prove or make sure we understand, it's how big an Omer is. And I think that's great. It's not like what manna was. He tried to describe that to us. The, mirat- the miracle of daily bread. It's really just, here's this Omer thing he puts at the end. Kept for your generations. It seems like this jar miraculously doesn't turn into worms and start stinking because that's what happens to manna after a day, except for it lasts for two days on the sixth and seventh day. So is God able to do this? Yeah, here's a jar. That, remember, so even when they don't get manna, they're going to have this jar that they carry around with them. And that's going to prove to them for the rest of Israel's existence that God can provide for them. Will God forgive them from their complaining? Yeah, sure. Look at the manna. Here's an example of what God does. Is God the creator God of the universe? Yeah, see, he made manna out of nothing, right? So they move from slavery to freedom. It includes the stage of complaining and sin, but it also includes the stage of learning to walk daily with God and get that daily bread. I'm repeating myself because Moses repeats himself, right? In this story, it seems to just keep happening again. So God saves them in chapter 14. He fights for them in chapter 15. He heals them in chapter 15. Then he provides for them in chapter 16. That's our God. Thank you, God. God's a good God. Next, he's going to teach the children of Israel how to lean on one another in chapter 17 and 18. So how do we as a congregation of the children of Israel trust each other, lean on one another, and bear each other's burdens, which is what we're commanded to do too. So that will be next week, and we'll keep working through how to walk through things with Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, this seems so simple. Come to you and get our daily bread. Take the Sabbath off, and don't worry about tomorrow. Lord, it is so simple, and at the same time, it is so, it's a lifetime journey to figure out how to do that. Lord, I pray we can do it quicker than 40 years. Help us to use these examples for admonition and teaching. Help us to see ourselves in a mirror and reflect on them. And help us to learn from these journeys of the children of Israel that we may more quickly serve you and, 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 and honor you. And Lord, if what you want from good as good service is for us to just be in the word every day and keep your Sabbath holy, help us to do that. It's really beyond us to not worry and to trust you. So teach us your ways, Lord. Help us to bend to your will instead of asking you to bend to ours. Help us to submit to your law and your commandments, not because we have to, Lord, but because we can in freedom give ourselves to you. Um, And Lord, that's love. You loved us and and we can choose to love you. Uh, So Lord, thank you for the gift of your son that Jesus showed that he is our daily bread and that we should every day remember that you gave your son as a price for us, that you have paid a ransom for us. And Lord, all you want is to live in that relationship with us and to teach and train us and mold us to be your servants. Help us to do that to the best of our abilities. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.